Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. Moving ever closer to that most climactic moment in all of history, the crucifixion of Christ. Last time we studied the gospel together, we broke bread. As we remember, Jesus' final Passover and the disciples' first communion. Now, as the group leaves that banqueting table, they follow Jesus to the Mount of Olives one more time. Where we all struggle to determine the will of God. For the purpose of our study this morning, I'm going to assume that most of us are somewhat familiar with the narrative that follows. That as they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the denial of Peter foretold, the forsaking of the Father predicted, the betrayal of Judas finalized, the arrest of the mob achieved. We will rehash some of that story as we continue But rather than focus solely on what happened historically in those moments, I'd like us to consider what it tells us about our Savior and how each of us should respond. To begin, we must consider just what the disciples were facing that fateful evening. Because in that, there is a challenge for us all. It's described in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 through 32. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles with me. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, once again, Christ tells his followers about his impending death and subsequent resurrection. The shepherd was going to be struck down in just a few short hours at this point. And then three days later, he would be raised to life again. Of course, this has already been revealed to the group any number of times. But as he speaks here, Jesus' voice has a much greater sense of urgency. A greater sense of immediacy. A greater sense of conviction. And yet, this is much more than just a final prognostication. This is a notice. A caution. A warning for all who intend to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. For his disciples in first century Jerusalem directly and for his disciples in the 21st century as well. In verse 31, Jesus said to them very plainly, you will all fall away. Now, the words fall away, which appear in most of our English translations, come from the Greek skandalizo, which literally means to stumble over something. 
to fall into a trap, to trip up somewhere along the way. And we hear the words fall away and we immediately think of losing our faith in apostasy. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Oh, he is telling every single one of them that they will stumble. That they will falter. That they will misstep as they wrestle with the reality of Christ's crucifixion. And while I'm sure that was a very difficult thing for them to hear, it would most certainly ring true. For the disciples in the garden and for God's people today. You see, even the most well-intentioned of believers struggle at times with their faith. They act in a manner unworthy of the gospel. They venture off the given path. Some of you may have walked in here this morning thinking, I'm the only one who wrestles with these things. But that's not true. Jesus uses the word all because it is a widespread, pervasive, collective problem that every one of us must address in our lives. And it seems that the situation the disciples were facing, what with the loss of their master, well, that's when we are most prone to stumble ourselves. When we lack strong leadership. When we combat increased levels of persecution. When we find ourselves in the midst of a change. Or most critically, when we are feeling distant from Christ Jesus. Those are huge monumental challenges that cannot be dismissed. Without a shepherd to lead, the sheep quickly Go astray. As persecution intensifies, cowardice often takes its place. Dealing with change can be disorienting and cause us to doubt ourselves. And when we lose a sense of God's presence in our lives, well, in those moments, the struggle is at its worst. And so the question today is not if, you and I will find ourselves in that kind of circumstance. But rather, how will we respond when that circumstance comes to pass? As we press deeper into the text this morning, we realize that all of the attempts of man fail to fix the problem. First, as we see in verse 33, rededicating your life, as we have come to call it, well, that is not the answer. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. But Peter said to him, oh, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. 
Now, of course, this is not the first time that Peter has been so bold about his belief in Jesus. Back in chapter 16, Peter professed his faith for the first time, saying, uh, certainly you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And not only did he make that initial declaration, uh, Peter made similar statements about his unparalleled commitment to the Lord before. He says to Jesus in chapter 19, I've left everything behind and followed you. I'll erect monuments in your honor. I'll walk on water even. I'm not going to fall away, Jesus. I am with you to the end. Well, who doesn't appreciate Peter's resolve? Now, he certainly meant well. Had the very best of intentions. You might say that his boasting had its own sense of honor and nobility even. But even man's most worthwhile commitments are destined to fall short. That's the foundational flaw behind our New Year's resolutions. Perhaps some of you resolve to do better in some particular area of your life this past January. But 92% of those commitments that we make fail within the course of even 12 months. If you want to set your mind on something, that's great. But how long does the decision like that typically last? A day? A week? Maybe if we're really determined, a month or two? When Jesus says, all of you will stumble, Peter jumps in, "Uh, not me. In fact, I'm going to double down on this thing. Even if I have to die, I will not falter. I will not deny. I will not fall away. Now, if Peter approached the altar in one of our modern-day church services, how would we view his proclamation? Well, we would check that box that says, rededication of faith. He's already a believer based on his previous profession, but now he is more determined than ever to live for Jesus all the way. Yeah, that sounds like a really good thing. But how long does it last? For 92% of Americans, less than a year. For Peter, less than a day. Before he was found sleeping on the job, abandoning Jesus in the garden, and denying that he even had knowledge of who the king of kings was. The fact that there is such a thing called rededication tells us by definition that every previous attempt at dedication has failed. Isn't that why we need to do it again? 
because it didn't take the first five, 10, or 50 times we profess it. That's why I have tried so hard during my time of ministry not to overemphasize the decision part of our faith. Because I could convince all kinds of people to decide for Jesus. But that says nothing about the work of the Holy Spirit that is required to regenerate their soul. And it sure doesn't mean they'll actually follow Jesus from this day forth unto forever. Peter was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt he could do it. That even if everyone else walked away, he had what it took to stay the course. And most of us are just like him. But our commitments are nothing if not flaky and fickle. And though it's hard to admit, more often than not, we fail to achieve what we what once so passionately had decided. Do you see? Now, when you stumble and fall, rededicating your life is not the answer. Nor is relying on your own strength. Let's take a look back at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And what happened then in verse 40? Jesus came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time to pray. And upon his return, verse 43, Jesus again found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, one of the problems with making bold declarations is the self-assurance that often goes with them. The more confident we are in our own abilities, the more vulnerable we become. As we're told in Proverbs chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before stumbling. This was the problem for the disciples who claimed they would never, ever fall away. It seems to me long before Peter ever denied the greatness of Christ, he denied the weakness of his own flesh. And I will tell you that those two issues are not 
unrelated. We have an unrealistic view, friends, of how hard following Jesus really is. And along with that, we have a gross overestimation of our own ability to do it. And because of that, we rely on ourselves rather than on the spirit of the living God. I mean, all the group had to do on this particular occasion was to stay awake. That's it. Keep alert. Keep watching and keep praying as Jesus told them in verse 38. How hard should that be? For men who 30 seconds ago told Jesus they would die at his bidding. No, it should not have been such a challenge. But everything is a challenge when we trust in our own strength. That's what Jesus tries to point out to them. When he says, the spirit is willing. But the flesh is just too weak. The Apostle Paul seemed to understand that concept as he did his own wrestling many years later. For what I am doing, he writes in Romans chapter 7, I don't understand. I'm practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. Yeah, but the doing of good is not. That's the issue, isn't it? We want to be better disciples. We want to follow Jesus more closely. We want to give him everything that we've got. The willing is there. But the ability to follow through, that's where we are found lacking. The truth is, you can have all the want to in the world. But in your own strength, you don't have what it takes. Sort of flies in the face of our self-empowerment movement. Our self-sufficient mantra that we carry around so proudly and boldly in our culture. In your own strength, you don't have what it takes, period. Walk away from temptation? You can't do that. Avoid the trappings of evil? Forget it. That's way too hard. Apart from Christ and his spirit, Scripture tells me I can do absolutely nothing. Oh, nothing that is except stumble, stammer, mess up, and sin. Now Luke goes on to explain the reason for their extreme weariness in the garden that night. It was not only fatigue from staying out a bit too late, it was also the sorrow and despair that came as they sensed Jesus 
with those same emotions in his final few moments on the earth. He was troubled. He was distressed. He was grieved by the things that awaited him. Emotions that obviously took their toll on the disciples as well. So on one hand, we might understand their slumber uh, because of the turmoil that was in the air. And yet, aren't those moments of trial the very moments that should compel us to draw nearer to the Lord and lean in? Aren't those the moments when we must join with the psalmist in saying, my flesh and my heart may fail as they are failing now. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yeah? Now, when we stumble and fall, friends, rededicating your life is not the answer. Relying on your own strength is not the answer. Nor is rising up against your enemies going to get you back on track. Take a look now at verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me there. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Although Matthew does not reveal his identity to us, John says the one who drew his sword was indeed Peter. Again, the most impulsive member of the apostolic group. With those same good intentions... He comes to the defense of Jesus by striking at the head of his captor. He misses slightly and catches the ear, but I suppose Peter would be willing to take them piece by piece if that's what we're called for. And still Christ was not impressed. Offering a rather stern rebuke when he says to Peter, put the sword away. That's not the way to prove your faithfulness. That's not how this is going down. 
I mean, if I wanted to rise up against these enemies, I don't need your sword to do it, certainly. I could easily call a legion, that is thousands, down from heaven, and all these accusers would be gone like that. But if we resort to those measures, how will the scriptures be properly fulfilled? And once again, we can appreciate Peter's intentions here. But fighting everybody that has an issue with Jesus is not the answer. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That slave Malchus who grabbed the hold of Jesus' wrist, the battle is not with him, nor is it with those scoffers today, those skeptics that we come across, those blasphemers yelling who knows what out in the streets. Even though their attacks are filled with hatred and wickedness, we do not repay evil with evil. Instead, hard as it may be, we are supposed to give a blessing. Isn't that the right scriptural response? Sometimes you got to stop fighting and trust that God already has this thing under control. That's what Peter had to learn in the garden. Man, put down the sword already. The kingdom is not one that way. No, I will go peacefully to my accusers, Jesus told him. I will let them mock and scorn because that's the way my father has decreed it. And so that should be our perspective in these kinds of matters as well. Reminds me of a conversation that Ryan and I had uh, with Pastor Eliezer as he was in last time from Liberia. After sharing some of our struggles and our attempts to fix what was wrong, he quoted the Lord's words to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's it, friends. Even as Jesus was facing the biggest struggle of his earthly life, he knows that flexing our muscle and fighting everyone who does us wrong is not the solution. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Yeah? Rededicating your life, it's not the answer. Relying on your own strength, it's not the answer. Rising up against your enemies, well, that's not the answer either. No, because we are so prone to stumble, as Jesus makes clear, the only response that makes any sense is that we would resign ourselves to the will of God. Take a look back now at verse 38. Jesus, being terribly troubled and distressed, said to Peter, James, and John, 
My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Most of us could likely quote this prayer of Jesus, having heard it any number of times before. And yet is it possible that we do not fully appreciate what Christ was facing as he makes this petition? Jesus is said to be troubled, distressed, and deeply grieved at this hour. Emotions that, for the most part, were unknown to the Son of God during his eternal existence. Why is Christ so distraught here then? That Matthew would describe him as being in agony to the point of death. He's still God. With complete control over every situation. With absolute authority, power, wisdom, and might. What could be so distressing? Did he fear the physical pain of the crucifixion? Was he saddened that his earthly life was about to end? No, his grief was fueled first and foremost by the horrifying recognition that he would soon become the bearer of sin and the object of divine wrath. That despite his perfect life, he would have to answer for every crime, every malice, every injury and every evil that was ever known to the world. For the first time, Jesus Christ was going to feel the burden and experience the misery of mankind's sin. Yeah, we talk about the cross and we point to the cross And we wear crosses around our neck. But most of us have little comprehension of what actually took place there. See, the Father and the Son were in perfect relationship with one another as members of the Holy and Blessed Trinity. Complete union in the Godhead for all of eternity past. Just as it was supposed to be. And yet, while hanging on the cross, we hear the son cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken? Why have you deserted? Why have you abandoned me in this hour? What happened in their relationship that caused that separation? Well, the same thing that causes us to be separate from God. Our Sin. Scripture tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on that cross. That we might be reconciled back to the Father. So as he takes on our iniquity, understand, friends, he's the one then who's pushed away. He's the one kept at his, he's the one who was Rejected. 
that those who were once far off, like you and you and you and me, might now draw near. Getting the picture of how this works. That's the horror that awaits Jesus. The cup of wrath that he must drink. Wholly unfamiliar with separation from the Father. It's no wonder he wants that cup to pass. It's no wonder he calls on God who controls all things to perhaps accomplish the plan in a different way. Remove it from me if possible, he says. But if not, then your will be done. As John MacArthur has said, Jesus ultimately knew that the cross was essential to the redemptive purpose of God. And so he surrendered himself entirely to the Father, willingly becoming obedient to the point of death, even death and desertion on a cross. In the wake of tragedy, suffering, and abandonment, when he was struggling so much himself, Jesus shows us how to get back in line with God Almighty. It's not by rugged determination. It's not by relying on strength of your own. It's not by raising up the sword to fight your oppressor. It's by submitting, surrendering, yielding to the will of God. Isn't that an essential part of following Christ to begin with? That we deny ourselves in order to walk in the ways of the Lord? Every day, friends, you and I are engaged in a spiritual battle of the wills. Human will on the one hand, heaven's will on the other. Until you and I start yielding to heaven, we are going to struggle mightily down here. Oh, and it doesn't have to be some mysterious or indescribable thing that we're going for. J.I. Packer puts it in the context of the everyday ebb and flow of life. He says, the will of God is the course of action in each situation that God sees as good, pleasing, and complete. He says the will of God is the most truly and fully God-glorifying response to each set of needs and possibilities. He said the will of God is the most biblical, faithful, and reverent option open to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Our Savior submitted himself to the will of God to redeem you unto the Father. It's time you submit to the will of God in your life that he might complete that glorious work that he began. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to come and gather. It is a 
tremendous grace of yours that your people can come together. Consider your greatness, your splendor, and your worth. And my prayer, Lord, is that we have done that rightly this morning. That with humble spirits and contrite hearts, we have exalted you to your rightful place of honor and glory. And Lord, I pray that that would not be a a spirit that we adopt for an hour or two a week as we gather. But Lord, that you would wash that over us. That we would understand the incredible limitations of our flesh. The weakness that we carry around because of sin. Our inability to take even one step closer to you in our own strength. Help us to recognize that. Lord, not as a matter of discouragement, but Lord, that we would learn to look in the right direction. That we would adopt a strength not of ourselves, but from you. Now, Lord, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit working among us and in us that you would uphold, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would allow us to follow after your Son, the Christ. We must do it. We can't do it on our own. We're desperate for more of you. Accomplish this work by your power and your strength and help us to partner well with you in our response. And all God's people said amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 